Hello listeners, welcome back to our episode of Quote Unquote with KK. Today's podcast, we talk about the global rule of three, is India the third superpower? Let me give you the backdrop of today's podcast. I had read Dr. Jagdish Seth's recent book, The Global Rule of Three, and was impressed with the thought process he had put in simply. While I was going through the book, our Prime Minister visited US and met with President Joe Biden. And around the same time, there was noise in India arriving at the world stage as the third emerging superpower when our stock market operator Rakesh Junjunwala presented our finance minister a presentation saying our time has arrived. Dr. Jagdish Seth's India China America ICA Institute also presented a paper titled The Strategic Importance of India in the New World Order. All these led me to think about today's issues on the podcast. So I have invited once again Dr. Jagdish Seth on our podcast to discuss these issues. Let me introduce you with Dr. Jagdish Seth. He has not only been the inspiration of this podcast, quote unquote, with KK, and he also presented in our first season a podcast on future of capital and capital market. For those who don't know Dr. Jagdish Seth, I would like to just briefly run his profile. Dr. Jagdish Seth is a renowned scholar and an internationally renowned thought leader. He has published more than 300 research papers and more than 30 books on various disciplines and topics. His insights on global competition, strategic thinking, geopolitics, and emerging markets are considered revolutionary. Dr. Jagdish Seth teaches at the Emory University and has recently founded India China America Institute a think tank which we will talk about in the podcast today. Having his roots from India, he has a close connect with several upcoming corporate groups as an advisor and board member. He has not only shaped India's corporate world, but also governance and has advised our Prime Minister's office, PMO, on several policy matters. Awarded with India's highest civilian award, the Padma Bhushan, he had come all the way to India on behalf of the famous marketing guru, Philip Kotler, to confirm the lifetime award to our Prime Minister Narendra Modi. Talking of Philip Kotler, he says Jagdish is a scholar, change agent, advisor, and entrepreneur, in other words, a Renaissance man. Such is the stature of Jagdish, and I had a pleasure of working with him way back when I was heading the healthcare business at Wipro, and he was on the board of Wipro. He would take time to meet me and guide me whenever he used to come to India for his board meeting. And it has been a pleasurable journey, learning a lot from Jagdish. Welcome back to Quote Unquote with KK Jagdish. It's a pleasure having you back. So, you so let much. me start with the recent Modi's visit to the US and no bear hugs with Joe Biden. I guess he's also equally old and he can't take what Trump could take it on. So what's the situation in US on Indo-US, Indo-Pak, Indo-China and US-China, Indo-US-China and all these triad of relationships in the Biden era? Well, I think the relationship between US and India will get stronger and stronger, primarily because US badly needs a major, major economy, a military power. 
in that part of the world. <clears throat> the world is clearly shifting toward Asia. Asia will be economically important region for this century. Military is very important to have a security in that area. And political alignment is also equally important. So given that, one large nation there, which can enable U.S. policy, Asia-centric or Asia-Pacific, I think India is a very critical nation out of nowhere compared to us. And I think all of this is because, unfortunately, there is a very clear new Cold War emerging in China and America. And in the process, you need somebody else as your ally, like we created NATO, for example, in Europe after the World War II to counterbalance communism or the rise of communism. I think something similar is happening now in the Asia theater or Pacific Asia theater. So, Jagdish, where do you think now India stands? You have written about it in a white paper as well. There has been a presentation by our market bull run uh, Rakesh Junjunwala to the PMO and the finance minister as well very recently. Apna time aa gaya. A time has come. That is for India. How do you think India is positioned and can you walk us through your thoughts and ideas on the paper that you have presented on India in the triad? Yeah, I think India has very good ingredients in search of a recipe. India historically has been positioned as an isolated domestic economy. It has to quickly become an integrated global economy to participate. And second dimension most critically is from a low-tech country, it has to become a very high-tech country very, very fast, as urgently as possible, which we are able to do 5G networks, connectivity, etc., etc. That's the fundamental shift of India's future versus the past. It has several very good ingredients to make the journey. The biggest ingredient is that it has a very large, middle-class-driven consumer economy. If you take the purchasing power parity measure, for example, India ranks number three with about $11 trillion GDP, of course, in rupee currency conversion, it becomes different. That's very interesting to watch. It is one of the largest markets in the world. If it is not the largest, the second largest market next to China, definitely surpassing. So if you are a company who would like to be a global player, you have no choice but to be in China or in India or in America, two of the three. As people are beginning to hesitate, continuing their journey in China, which they should, my view, India becomes strategic in the process pretty much as just a consumer market alone. And the reason why consumer markets are growing is because most most consumption in India is unbranded products so far, about 60% or so. They're all becoming more and more branded products, even for daily necessities like lentils, wheat, rice, atta, everything. And also India is shifting from unorganized sector to an organized sector. I think that's, that's very clearly more and more is happening. So I think that gives an enormous, India is a very attractive market to do business. Second area is that India is a very large market. In fact, India may be the largest buyer of weapons surpassing even Saudi Arabia outside of the NATO alliance, captive market. Uh, the third thing is that the current administration has been able to understand, especially the Ministry of External Affairs, along with the PMO office, to understand that they are very welcoming the world come to India, but more importantly, have diplomatic political relations, especially with G7, maybe up to G20 nations. All of this says that India becomes now more from a peripheral to a core of the world of today. I think that's really one fact. The other area is India badly needs huge infrastructure. While in America, we have a deferred infrastructure. India needs an infrastructure brand new. For example, I've suggested that how quickly can we create at least 
20 airports very quickly to second tier cities. We should not rely on this hub and spoke model only where Bombay, Delhi, Bangalore become the hub, but we need to also go into smaller towns because that's where manufacturing takes place. So you can have a shipment taken directly, in fact, from there to anywhere in the world. With the COVID phenomenon, shipping is in a trouble right now. I think it's very easy to have air, airlifting of a mechanism. Air cargo is growing, especially for those products which are less weight and a lot, lot of value. So as we go more and more to a technology product, that seems to be well. Only a few products are going to be not as viable by air freight. But in addition to the airports, India badly needs about 15 to 20 additional seaports. It is a great coastline, but we have not invested historically in building many, many seaports or make them modern, contemporary. So they're highly technology-enabled smart ports, essentially would be the idea, is my view. So we should not just have to rely on Kandala, for example, or Mundra, or ports like that, or Vishakapatnam on one side, or Kochi. We have lots of potential of growing. So once we build a network of seaports, then the Indian domestic market, I can sell by seaport. So the pressure on the truck or the lorry gets less, for example. Or, you know, the arc, it's very possible to imagine that. Arc. So infrastructure clearly just for markets alone. You need also infrastructure to be built for the military. We have many, many border places where access to that border area where something can happen, a provocation or something. You have to deploy very quickly for which you have to build modern capabilities. So infrastructure is very, very important. I also believe that India is as a second major resource that we need to really appreciate and understand. I think India is destined to become the service capital of the world as um, China became the manufacturing capital of the world. There's nothing wrong. Services capital is so large, potential going beyond IT services, accounting services, legal services, any professional certified service in fashion. And you can see more and more multinationals of the world not outsourcing, but insourcing in India. In other words, we see a day, not too far in the future, maybe five to six years from now, all large becoming one of the largest employers in India because bringing workers from India to America is getting more politically difficult with the whole immigration issues going on any place in the world, by the way, not just limited to America. But taking work to India is not as feasible because of security issues, etc. You can work done there. Ernst Young, for example, has 50,000 employees in Hyderabad alone. Accenture will be probably the largest IT company employment-wise in India, not even TCS or Wipro or InfoServe. So the scale is enormous because we have the talent. The world would like to definitely mechanism to diversify from China. And that goes for many industries, pharmaceuticals, garments, for example. Surprisingly, we are a dominant player in uh, diamonds. No country can come close to India in terms of the amount of diamond we produce. For the world's 60% or so diamonds are all made in India. That can be an industry. Just goes on. There are many, many industries like that. But the focus has to be more on services sector, including education. So, Jagdish, one clear strength that India has demonstrated is its ability to come out of the pandemic, create its own vaccine, create its own IP, and deliver it to a billion citizens, billion doses, and ensure that there is no other wave. While China is still suffering from another wave, India is likely not to suffer that. And this has obviously given confidence to a lot of countries in the world and look up to India per se. 
as an emerging superpower as part of the the triad our major concern is china the way they have dominated through the infrastructure creating the belt and road initiative and trying to acquire a lot of other strategic assets overseas to ensure that they maintain to be the world's largest factory and the supplier of goods per se covid has taught the world a lesson and that's why they look up to india don't you think that india also has a capability to be a manufacturing hub just like china i think it's capable clearly uh, in order to do that india needs to have an internal supply chain market is ready for the question and it may be even possible that if we allow foreign investors to come to india not only for its domestic market india's domestic market which is pretty large but also manufacturing is centered in a way where it becomes a huge export potential so its capacity is built not only just for indian consumption but also world consumption i think that's very important here india can be very good in it was a good country, you know way back when when the british rule even lots of manufacturing was invested in india i think we can revitalize that through supply chain as a key issue but most importantly there are two ingredients that one needs to add you have to embrace global standards of those global safety standards aesthetic standards whatever you call i think india has to basically upgrade the whole manufacturing mindset to say we will be world class products made in india are as good as products made in america germany sweden china japan etc that's that's a cultural shift we have to make second thing we have to do is to we really don't do branding as well on a global level one of the soft powers of any country is no longer just the culture the history the legacy but soft power is more and more now the brands a country creates you know if you look at the history of japan after world war 2 they were laughing stock cheap goods just like we used to laugh at china japanese invested obviously quite a lot into the branding area especially for exports and the world changed today they became the most admired nation for brands like sony at one time then of course toyota in the automobile it can mitsubishi in industrial products i can give you names of the names world began to wake up and japan can make good quality products or good brand names so did south korea same thing so did taiwan so did hong kong it was an independent territory i think it's all capable we can do it we have the capacity but it's a question of thinking differently so can can we invest into global standards and embrace them rather than saying our own standards are fine and can we create a brand that world admired india so those are the two ingredients so i couple i did want to mention that one more ingredient that we need to really leverage is indian diaspora one of the right. reasons we have such a good quality image about india is the people sell abroad are making that's the one more manage yeah so jagdish moving forward i wanted to dive on this uh, topic of how the indian government is trying to move the manufacturing sector forward and also on the infrastructure there have been couple of major policy initiatives that the government has announced one obviously is our national infrastructure plan where the government has announced that it will divest out a lot of the existing divest assets out. to fund new assets and on the manufacturing side the government has announced various production link incentives for india to make or produce intermediary products which it was solely dependent on china to move it further in the supply chain and then service the global markets from india itself so these are some of the policies that already the government has aggressively moved forward 
Do you think that there needs to be another liberalization so that global players can start actually helping India in accelerating the reliance away from China for the raw material inputs that uh, India relies on? I think it's very possible. The world in India in a very positive light. From language officially like English we speak together, we are able to communicate. Diaspora that I mentioned, for example, which has a soft power of its own. So overall, it's very possible for us to create a policy of inviting intermediary level people to come invest in India and raise the standards on the one hand. To me, liberalization is very good at one but now every industry, even if you're a domestic player in India, has to compete globally. Global players will come. Protectionism doesn't work. Because we tried protectionism on the license side and we created a whole gray market. You could buy Sony television from Dubai or from Singapore, bring it over here, you know, in the black market essentially. So we already had an black market informal economy every time you try to regulate the market. So I do believe that more you open up, the more it stains everybody. And we are very capable. I'm, I'm very proud of our Indian manufacturers who do a fantastic job if they are challenged, if they have a competition. I mean, we make world-class uh, automotive components as good as anybody. Correct. We maybe make snack products, anybody. Uh, Papanjali is a great brand out of nowhere. We know how to take unorganized sector, unbranded product, make it into a branded product. So I'm very optimistic both in the industrial sector, but definitely in the consumer side. You know? So I think it's very doable. It's a question of having the Indian ethos, average public believing that just because a foreign company comes to India, we are basically not competitive or we are not doing a good job. My view is that India as a culture, historically, thousands of years of history, anybody who came from India, they became Indianized. Isn't that interesting? Correct. No matter whom. We made them Indian because they loved what... And I think my view is that whoever comes next gets Indianized and they can learn quite a lot from the Indian marketing to go global. There's a reverse innovation phenomenon. So I worry quite a lot the owners of the company. Uh, we have basically... Indianized or domesticated companies like Hindustan Liver, for example, ITC, you know, it's Imperial Tobacco made into Indian tobacco. Now, ITC, that's a very much a domestic company, no matter how you look at it. And that'll be true for all kinds of industries. I think it's very doable. I think we should also talk about uh, the reverse. People don't know that Jaguar Land Rover is an Indian company owned by Tata's. And in fact, post acquisition of that, the Tata cars over here, their quality, their, their design and look has tremendously, you know, improved gaining in from the experience from the JLR acquisition. So I think acquisitions also have actually a way for India to establish credibility and capability as well in manufacturing sector. I totally agree with you because in typical acquisition, especially from an advanced country, let's take the garment industry and your Raymond, which is a good, good corporate, great actually. Well, if Raymond's buy a designer or a Spanish design, a design company, it brings a new idea. It gives a new perspective on how to create products. They can similarly do some manufacturing of, you know, some of the components that goes in making garment, not just the design. About certain colors and the dyes, etc. I think it's very possible. So, to me, acquisition has three positives, maybe four. First one is that R&D becomes very valuable. One of the things historically we did not do was that we basically went from a trading to manufacturing. So, we brought a trading mentality. If you look at the early places, they were all trading houses. And so, that's one very key factor that I think we have to figure out. 
we have to become a manufacturing culture, not a trading culture. The second main thing is that so you get R&D. We did not invest enough. Our corporations have not invested in R&D as much as they should. I think that's a very important message. And government can. The second thing is that many of the foreign countries really bring in talents, global talent. So besides our manufacturing process, we know how to do well. We can learn quite a lot through acquisition, especially the whole supply chain, logistics, warehousing, etc. They can upgrade quite a lot. And sometimes they have brand names that are already worldwide, Jaguar, that you, Land Rover that you mentioned. But that is true for Novellis, which is owned by, I think, in the Birla Group Primer, Indalco. And that Novellis is a world-class company, highly respected in sheet aluminum, for example, in the U.S. So, so I think we have many possibilities like that. Or you may say ArcelorMittal as well. ArcelorMittal, exactly. I mean, it's just, we have to just think about those and make it very conscious and actually even encouraged to publicize that I think it's very possible for us to become a good manufacturing center in the process. But maybe not across all things, but wherever we, it's a natural resource, it is an agricultural resource, for example, and one can create enormous value add on those. Jagdish, I want to shift our gears here. You recently published a book, and I guess the theme of your book, you have also written a chapter on it as well. And I wanted to bring in your synopsis of the book. I've read the book. There are so many more questions. I think that should become a separate podcast by itself. But very briefly for our listeners, if you could outline the thought process of your book that you have written and published recently, and how does that tie up to the three superpowers in the world? How is the world order going to change? I guess that should really be very valuable insights to our listeners. Sure. The book is called The Global Rule of It's a sequel of the original book called The Rule of Three. And the rule of three came through my advising consulting work where I realized that all industries are basically looking like a shopping mall. In fact, the idea came in a typical shopping mall that I was doing work on a retail company. I found suddenly that in every shopping, you have full line departments or anchor stores, as we call them. Could be Sears, Macy's, uh, JCPenney, for example, Montgomery War at that time. And in between, you have specialty retailers such as, for example, a footlocker. And there are two kinds of specialty retailers. Those who offer product line, they are customer agnostic. And those who are customer segment focused, they are product agnostic. For that segment, like a given lifestyle, they will offer everything that that lifestyle segment would like to have. And those two specialty are the coexist. Surprisingly, they don't compete in the short run with the general. In fact, Sears Roback, when they built the shoppings in the 20s, when automobiles were growing in America, they intentionally invited specialty retailing to create a larger footprint to the shopping mall so they can come to Sears or they can go to Foot Locker or they can do whatever specialty retailing would be there. Now, how do they make money? The generalist through sheer scale volume. So they're volume to They look at the turns. How many turns are you making of merchandise sitting on the shelf or in the warehouse or in the back of? of the store primarily. The specialty people make money opposite to margin. They are very selective. They don't compromise on two different approaches. Suddenly I realized that when a plant on market share against financial performance like return on assets or market cap even for that matter, there are two curves. You have the curve for the general and the rule is very simple. The topmost market shareholder must have 40% market share and beyond 40% it is not profitable or optimal concentrate market share more than 40.1, 40.2%. 40 
Number two player usually has 20% market player, market share. Number three player is 10%. Now, here is the interesting non-intuitive, non-intuitive finding. Number three company is always the most innovative, not number one or two. It was not the General Motors or Ford, but Chrysler was always the innovative. They changed the paradigm. It was not Coca-Cola or RC or Pepsi. It was RC Cola that came out with new changes from a technological viewpoint, packaging viewpoint, marketing campaign viewpoint, and that is consistent across all industries. When there is a fight for market between number one and number two because the economy is not growing or the industry has some issues, whatever it is, number three company collapses. It goes into what we call a ditch, which is a gap between the generalist and the opposite is true at this special. More you are specialty, small market higher. But as you begin to grow, you go in the ditch. So growth for the margin-driven company should be very disciplined, which generally happens in multi-generational family-owned business. But as soon as you do a great job, a company like it is happening, new IPOs, you list it on the stock market, immediately the analyst will put pressure on growth, and you begin to grow faster and faster, which actually becomes disaster. So you have two players, specialty players, the generalist players, and in between is what we call the ditch. And ditch are the people which neither have the efficiency of scale nor inclusiveness of some specialization differentiation that commands a higher margin. This pattern is very interesting. And we have analyzed 50 product uh, industries, services industries. Pattern follows the same way. Now, there are some exceptions. The key exceptions are that families, not listed companies, as it will be true in accounting firms, for example, rule of three does not prevail. The top three don't, don't dominate. Or if it is a licensed, patent-driven industry like pharmaceuticals, you don't see the rule of three because you get a sub-monopoly for product category. If it is also a regulated market, countries are not or companies are not allowed to compete for utility industries would be a typical one where you're given a natural monopoly concept or countries without risk from allowing income to come in. But other than that, rule of three. There are a couple of additional nuances in rule of three. The one key factor is that while we know exactly three large survive, not two, not four, not five, optimal between the profit for the investors and wellness of the society in terms of choice is always three. In fact, the rule of three is so universal worldwide, it is true in all religions, for example. It is true in journalism. We always tell speakers to say first time, say it again, and then conclude. It's, it's very universal. We don't know why three numbers are always a key number in every, every aspect of the life, but it happens. And we think it balances very, very well between public well-being and private wealth, at least in the business sector. Second thing more interesting is that it has a pattern. 40 to It has certain conclusions like third company being most innovative. They are the disruptors, etc. is a very key. And very few companies which are niche players will become a generalist. So if I'm a niche player, a serial entrepreneur, I will grow a business and then immediately I sell to the big boys as it is happening in Silicon Valley, as it is happening streaming services right now. I can go up giving you bunch of sure. The rule of three, however, is to a domestic market. As the market gets more and more liberalized or become global, rule of three prevails. So you may have three American companies dominating America in automobile, GM, Ford, and Chrysler. You may have three or four European companies dominating in Europe, such as Volkswagen Group, for example, or uh, Mercedes-Benz, or whatever the car maker. Actually, it's Volkswagen, Renault, 
fiat were the dominant volume players. Though others are luxury. And your rule of three prevailing in Japan are Toyota, Nissan, and now the auto industry is global. There is inevitability of consolidation. Usually, number three company collapses or Chrysler co- collapse, bought out by Fiat. It just goes on and on. So there is a global rule of three, which is what we are watching right now, especially with the new book and fascinating. In the global rule of three, these are not the advanced countries where one of the players is coming. But it turns out to be emerging economy, multinational. How do we now apply this same global rule of three to the countries in the world order? Is the question a tricky one, though? <laughs> yeah, very true. We took in the book. We took a more macro view. We said, correct. Okay, it is true for the industry. There must be something about the nations or economies in general. And we found same thing. Lo and behold, if you take the purchasing power parity measure and use that as a measure to calculate the GDP, you clearly see the top one is China, with about thirty trillion dollar economy. Second one is America, at about about twenty trillion roughly. But India comes out as third country at about eleven trillion, and then you see a drop suddenly by Japan is five trillion. Then of course French is much lower, and all the advanced much lower. So this leads to a new triad power, which right. is what was the old triad. As of 1987, the old triad power: 12 European countries, Western Europe, not the EU yet. America, basically, Canada, so 14, and Japan is a late entrant after World War II. 75% of all the GDP value add was created in manufacturing in those days in this 15 economy. 45% of the world trade was in this economy. They bought and sold products. From each other, why 45 and not higher? They still had to depend on their former colonies to get their raw materials, industrial raw materials, for example, agricultural raw materials, and sometimes human capital also, the labor in many ways. So because of that, the export import was not as great. This has now shifted. The new triad power: China, India, America. Now in the old triad power, Western Europe, which is German primarily, and America. After World War II, because America defeated the Japanese and the Germans in World War II, they could impose a common values. They organized IMF, World Bank, and even United Nations to make sure that a war of the scale, destruction of World War II, should never happen. So they had a harmonious same thinking on economic policy, political policies of the world, military presence, etc., and it worked very, very well. But now we have a new world order. All of those alliances in disarray. Very interestingly. European Union has its own agenda. What they want to do, Asia Pacific has its own agenda, and in the process, there's a new triad power, there, which is India, China. And I have a policy, by the way. Right. But you know, originally we wanted to call China, India, America, but then we found the acronym CIA, which is a brand <laughs> you don't want to acquire. And so I did not want America in the front, so we basically put together as India, China, America. Now the main mission of the institute is different than what's happening. My belief is that a major war it will not happen in Europe anymore because European Union is basically uh, you know Americanization of Europe. Suddenly you cannot go to war with it. so it was an antidote to war. There is nothing like that I can see in Latin America, surprisingly in the Middle East or the West Asia as we call it. But the potential of a major war now is all in. There are several hotspots: Taiwan, right. Pakistan, India, being China, India being third one. North Korea. I can go on list. Any one of these can get out of hand, like a wildfire. So the only anti-nuclear weapon, surprisingly, not the antidote is to make each of these three economies 
interdependent on each other by totally liberalizing trade and investment free flow. Because if I have millions of Chinese living in America and I have millions of Americans living in China, I can't afford to go to war with you. I have a prisoners totally in my control now. Same thing would be true. You can't afford to go to war because it topples the government. Whether you are a democracy or not makes no difference because war has a consequence of what happens to your citizens in a foreign country. So that's our argument. Should be actually opening up more with each other, but it is not likely to happen. Yeah, It's exactly. Like, uh, the pandemic <laughs> yeah. has actually reversed that. India and China went at because of the border skirmishes. Yeah. Actually, restricted each other's trade flows and other bilateral ties. And then, on the other hand, during the Trump regime, we had a very big pushback on China from Trump regime as well. So, although they are the three are there at the top, ideologically and politically, they're totally diverse. Exactly. And how do you see this whole political ideology changing in the future? Is my next question. If we don't change this, I don't think the new world order can get created in a peace and harmonious manner. No, I totally agree with you. Each of the three big powers, the new triad power, has a different legacy and history. America always has believed from the day it was founded almost on what I would call cowboy capital. Capitalism is the for not democracy. This is capitalism, free market, based on Adam Smith's principle, David Ricardo principles. We believe in that thing. It is in the DNA of American choices. Let market failure take place. Markets compete. More excess will come about. More, you know, complete cowboy capitalism, as I call it. Till market fails, government is intervening or shaping the future of the industry or the market. China has a communist, but everything is owned by the. State. There is no private capital. Till recently, it is changing. So legacies are different. Ours is a mixed feeling. We believe in capitalism, but with a caution. To us, capitalism is a great power, but a wild river. If you allow it to flow free, like a Nile River, it can be destructive also, not only to you but the entrepreneur. How do you bank it through policy? Capital is there, but guide it through properly. It serves the society, not just your shareholder value. So we have a mixed feeling. I think this legacy and the way we are trained in our colleges or even in family creates a way of saying we don't. We are not on the same. Pages mentally, so we don't we don't trust each other in many ways. But each has a different ideology. Fortunately, more and more ideology is not what I would call technology. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not it's not even economic pragmatism. It's all technology race. If you look at it, and all three countries massive chase, new inventions, discoveries, whatever you do in the technology world, especially as we go toward more and more digital world, digital technology, space technology, etc. And that will be the common battle. So, if I were to look at the PEST C, that is political, economic, sociological, technological, and consumer, which we have touched upon very briefly across, I guess the major breakthrough in the who will lead the next world order would be on technology. The war would be on technology, I guess, not on a physical war. Absolutely, absolutely. Jagdish, I want to talk a little bit about the ideologies and some of the risks of each of the styles of the three triad powers. You see, open market and the cowboy capitalism created the Lehman crisis, and the world suffered. We are just on the precipice of another Lehman crisis in China due to the Evergrande and other collapses that could potentially 
you know, again, derail the world order and affect the world. And similarly, we have had scams, major scams because of poor regulation, although we want, we believe that all our regulations are good, but there have been massive scams in, in our system. So how do you think we could de-risk this whole thing in these three ideologies to coexist in a harmonious way, as well as grow out and build a harmonious relationship with the world order? I think it's going to be more difficult and challenging. Because you have to bring everybody to a common mindset about what needs to be done. There are two or three common concerns emerging worldwide. And you can therefore unite on those despite your differences. COVID is clearly one of them. COVID pandemic said, let's wake up. There's a common phenomenon. All three of us, your whole world is in jeopardy. Correct. And how begin to share leverage so you allow them to create their own vaccine sample, to make sure vaccines are given license free, you know, in a free, free licenses to produce to emerging economies or Africa or wherever, you know, the WHO basically guides through process. So you have some sort of a major pandemic unified. Longer term, it is really climate change. Environment. Everybody agrees that it is a dangerous thing that we are moving toward. We don't see the impact like a COVID impact, which is instant, immediate and a large scale. But there is an ongoing concern that we are moving toward a disastrous course on climate change. And because of that, there may be unification, commonality, you know, message among these nations by and large. No matter which background you come from, whether it's a Chinese legacy, Indian legacy or American, everybody says climate change is a real problem. How can we cooperate and compete with it? The third area is also important, which is saying that we have to invest in economic development and social development of many people who are below the poverty level, mostly Africa and South Asia, official poverty level. Correct. I think we are all saying uh, have to contribute no matter who you are. And these three nations have capabilities which they can contribute. For example, I've been an advocate that on the online education, India can become the education capital for emerging economy. Western worlds are so expensive. Online education, I can go anywhere in the world. So now you see five, six major companies as startup, not just Baiju, which has been very well established, but you see Upgrad, for example, you see Simply Learn, you see other platforms, all becoming very significant, and they serve the global market, especially emerging economy market, so low-income consumers. That's one more area. If there are four, therefore, which become more global agenda as opposed to individual country agenda. And the last thing that I'm optimistic is that ultimately, no matter what ideology you come from, and this I've written in my book called Tectonic Shift way back when, before I published Chindia Rising. And then in that book, I mentioned that only thing that matters in politics, contrary to all of our prior knowledge, is livelihood, economics, jobs. Are you able to fill my stomach, which is an income? Are you able to fill my wallet, which is wealth creation? And today it is not income versus wealth creation. You have to do both. So the agenda for a political leadership or political parties is, is all economic pragmat. What can you do economically? to increase employment of people, their wages going up on the one hand, and what do you by providing possibility where you have some way of creating wealth for the people, whether it is through owning homes, affordable housing, for example, stock market, example, proper safety investments other than the banks, where the wealth creates wealth at the same time, life policies, just goes on, there are several, I think that's, so everybody's agreeing on that kind of an approach. To me, I'm a little more optimistic that the world will be actually not as confrontational as we thought, definitely on the first 
face you. That's a great summary of what could be the way to de-risk. I want to bring in, since you have been a marketer and you understand all this, the big elephant in the room, social media. That has been shaping and dethroning politicians and slowly changing the, the whole ideological politics across the world. And that obviously what you mentioned is technology, all about technology yes. here. And very recently we had a whistleblower issue on Facebook with respect to the 2019 elections where algorithms and certain other things have been viciously done and manipulated to change public opinion and big elections. And we also know Cambridge Analytica issue in previous elections in America and elsewhere. How do you think the power of this technology which so far had not been that unregulated, need to be regulated so that there is a harmonious political and sociological transformation across the world. Uh, it's going to be challenging mainly because unlike other media, press as a media, television as a media, radio as a media, they're all given license to operate with a strong internal journalism control, editorial policy. We allowed it to be a free, unregulated phenomenon. Social media rode on that platform. And therefore, we did not put checks and balance. We basically trusted the economy. We trusted the consumers. We trusted the suppliers, companies to do the job properly and let it sort out. I think now we have all realized there is a market failure. The negative consequences of free-for-all social media can become pretty harmful to the society at large, not just to one individual or a political party. Very massive, almost. Basically, they are, they are a extra jurisdiction. In other Correct. words, they're borderless. Because today, largest nation no longer China or India. Largest nation is what I call a Facebook nation. Two billion inhabitants, citizens of Facebook. They do not recognize any boundary of any. There's no some such thing in their mind that this is India, this is China, this is America, this is France. They transcend all that. There's something that bonds them together. Very interesting phenomenon. The question is, is it therefore creating disruption in the current way we have jurisdictional authorities given to people? And how do we counterbalance? So my view is very simple. Internet has to be regulated whether we like it. Self-regulation has proven not to be traceable. An example, well, it's just one example. There are many more. Oh, Twitter also but, in India. They didn't want exactly. to follow right. Indian uh, laws and regulation. Exactly. Exactly. So you have to have, the only way you will get a common regulation is not by one country or European Union, which is ahead by simply saying, you know, you do have to have the rights of the people primarily about whether they would like to be on your social media or not. You know, and they came up with a, their own uh, identification technique. I think it will be basically ultimately becoming a United Nations. Ultimately, there will be an agency just like we did for health, WHO. We created an agency called UNIDO for industrial development. As a global phenomenon, social media are becoming global phenomenon. How can we use them for the positive force for the society? Because it can be a positive force as opposed to having side effects or negative. In fact, I'm writing a book exactly on that one. Seven oh, okay. Side effect, <laughs> seven side effects at age. And it is scary. It is scary. The biggest scare to me is not as much social media influencing political process, which they have done clearly, but people beginning to believe that virtual world is better than the real world. Mm -hmm. Virtual world has no flaws, no tick marks or something. It's, it's a perfect. And people are now living more in virtual world 
for their happiness. It's not even escapism in many ways. And this appeals to lots of educated people, uneducated people. So you have the communities like Second Life. You have communities like Farm. So the announcement by Facebook changing the name, they believe more and more people will be living in metaverse, they call it. Correct. The virtual world. And so, and personal relationships now are more in the, you know, virtual world where you have a boyfriend or a girlfriend, significant other, which totally virtual. This is a change and that is what happens to the family. Does family as a unit survive as we know? I think it's a very key issue. I think we will therefore somehow create some policy, guideline, some regulation to make sure that this whole Pandora's box that we open or the genie that is out of the bottle, how can we make sure that it a positive societal force, good for the society, rather than becoming a negative dark forces. I just want to close this with one more discussion point. China has completely banned Facebook and, you know, the Western world social media and has actually policed their own local homegrown social media with a lot of censorship and whatnot. That's the, the other extreme that the triad or could possibly be facing on the technology side as well. Do you think that just like the IMF, as you mentioned, that we need to probably now create a new world order organizations that will have to look at cyber terrorism, that would have to look at regulating social media, that will have to look at uh, even the whole ecological impact of all these servers and the cooling and the technology now everything is on server, so there's a huge ecological uh, impact also on right from the climate change point of view. And several other factors that this whole, including uh, manpower, the whole yes. global globe is short of digital uh, workforce. And it's accelerating uh, so faster during the pandemic that even India is short of, of its own resources, highly trained resources in digital technologies. So, and that obviously comes from an education and training. And do you think that the new world order and the triad would also now need to debunk all these 1940 post-World War era, IMF, World Bank and all, and create a new technology-driven uh, institutions and redefine how the world order has to be, you know, moved ahead and managed through these institutions. I think uh, you are so right. The first more and more emerging economy, which became in the limelight with the Goldman Sachs report called BRICS, right. dancing with the BRICS or something. People woke up that emerging economy future growth engine for economics of the world. I think during that time, people began to look at whether IMF organized sort of Western country viewpoint is the right organization. So would be the World Bank there, began to look with skepticism. And as you know, alternatives were created by the five or the BRIC countries, with South Africa added BRICS. So they created, of course, the Asia Asia Infrastructure Bank, which became the Belt and Road Initiative. They right. created a, I think, new new development bank. One of the Indian bankers became the chairman first, rotating every Kamath. I guess, I think. Yeah. Kamath, exactly right, yeah. Mr. Kamath. And, and so, you know, they try to do that thing, but it has not worked into the shift. So I think what is happening more and more is therefore the creation of from G7 to G20 to include significant emerging economy as a part of the dialogue. The dialogue will take place, not just seven nations. Russia, they added, they kicked out Russia eventually, but brought to Saudi Arabia, India, Brazil, you know, the BRIC nations in many ways expand the whole entourage. I think that will be another common paper dialogue. But I do agree that the traditional institutions 
have an identity crisis. Yeah, I mean, the, the pandemic actually, America walked out of WHO and then rejoined under the Biden era. I guess the World Bank should be now the World Crypto Bank. I guess the currencies will also at some point in time fade away into a crypto or a digital currency across the world. And the fear is that we need to even start redefining institutions in the new world order as India and all these three triad kind of escalate and develop a technological prowess. So if the, the war is on technology and the ranking of the world order is going to be based on technological prowess, I guess it's time that we redefine institutions as well. Clearly, I mean, you are so right. There's a whole new governance in the digital age. All of our governance mechanisms have come at the institutional level from our industry. Uh, In the way we teach what we teach in the universities, for example. I have a whole scenario that I've drawn in education that before industrialization, where, where did we learn? We learned three sources, three C's of learning, as I call it. First of all, community. Local community, panchayat, governed you very, very well. They, they taught you what is the good or bad. You did not follow the norms of the community. You were outcast. Correct. Second one that we learned quite a lot was craft. There was a guild, master guild, who taught you skills, which had some economic value. That was the second C, craft. The third one, congregation, either religious-based congregations or pre-former religion. Three C's of learning. We shifted that in the industrial age to what we call three R's of Literacy was in. They came out with reading, writing, and arithmetic, which is a great platform for the industrial age, but not for the digital. In the digital age, I have come out with a framework called three eyes of learning. has to be more and more interactive. It's not like taking notes and memorizing. It's like dialogue. And people have found evidence-wise that the more you learn interactive approach, the more you have a reach, more you have the memory. So first key message is interaction, interactivity built into it. Second one is very interesting, integration. Learning should be integrated. There is something common between music and math. This whole debate that you are a right, right brain, left brain is a fallacy. Because music is a language. Math is a language. If you take a meta-analysis, both are languages. And of course, software is a language. So I can easily cut now say, what is common between music and math? How can I connect the dots? So that's it. The third one is that more and more learning has to be individualized, personalized, so that even in large class, I can have one-on-one communication with you as students, me being a teacher or whatever, you know, role we play, which is very possible in the digital age. Three eyes of learning. That's the governance changes. So will be true for corporations in the way they run it, for international bodies like the World Bank or the IMF or any of the United Nations agencies. I think that's very key. So we are actually together a handbook of future of governance in the digital age. About four of us are together. And it looks very fascinating. People are creating scenarios about how we will regulate in the future anything about the world, primarily the world order. I think it's really interesting. But, but it has to change. Industrial age thinking is not relevant. It's already obsolete as we go towards the digital age. I want to briefly touch up on one of the factors, the capital. Yes. We've not talked about it in our talk because the race to grow to the pole position in the world order, each of the countries needs capital to invest and to grow. And obviously, each of the models have very different ways of providing capital for growth. U.S. has a very open, free capital market policy regulated. India is somewhere in between. China is totally regulated with a lot of state controls, not coming out in the media, but a lot of camps as well. 
How do you think capital will be driven and provided in these countries to grow out in the future? That's a very critical yeah. question. India is not a capital-starved country or in that middle income. Now, India has got enough capital. But it's the yeah. issue of how do we regulate the capital and drive it in the right direction is our challenge. So there are two main points about capital. First one is that capital at one time during the monarchy day was strictly controlled by the kings and the emperors. They owned capital. The serf or the peasants had no access to capital, no ownership of any kind. Then we shifted to capital, you know, from Adam principles, modern capital, where corporations, individuals, but really institutions began to own capital. So you had large corporations who you can participate as shareholders, but it was basically corporate capital. I guess and we are going capital. to have two trillionaires who will be on the surface of the earth very soon, um, out, yeah, right out exactly. of uh, America. That's exactly how I was leading up to go from capitalism, from sovereign capital to corporate capital. At one time, countries like G could invest all over the world, you know, idea. Now, the capital has shifted more and more towards personal capital, personal. It's mind-boggling. My analysis found that in the last 20 years or so, personal wealth has grown $160 trillion, not the trillion dollars. Oh, boy. We have generated more than million millionaires in one decade alone. We have 5,000 so billionaires now. And if you take the 160 trillion capital, their investment into diversified portfolio, including alternate investments, it generates about 10% to 11% return. That says they're generating $16 trillion of wealth every year, which is as big as bigger than U.S. economy generating value-added products to create from raw materials to consumable products. That changes the paradigm, which says ultimately future control of capital or capital may be actually with individual players more so than institutions, which is a fundamental. We say that George Soros as an individual can really play the game of hedging on currency and pretty much topple a nation and its central bank. How do you tame that capital? Second thing is that capital is becoming high-tech. Everything is digital. Correct. So not only that, but that has led to the cryptocurrency. Cryptocurrencies, while they began for the informal economy, hawala, hawala that we do, for example, uh, drug traffic, you know, for corruption money, it's getting more and more legitimate. In fact, these wealthy individuals are saying, not their corporation, I would like to put my capital in a cryptocurrency. That also is changing the nature of capital in many ways. And how does somebody manage a cryptocurrency capital will be a key issue in the past. But I'm totally convinced that ultimately what makes the difference is that one individual who owns the money personally and what that individual decides to do with that. That'll be a very different paradigm to think about. And we can imagine those people have hundreds worldwide who they are and then they basically are reflecting their values on, 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 on the... So it's technology, yeah. it's individuals, it's social media affecting individuals and our world order where two most pop populous countries have to deal with to remain in this triad to be yeah. at the top of the world order. It's a very challenging task. I guess we should leave it to Elon Musk to set up the colony and change <laughs> this from the world order to the solar order, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> very good point. Very good. Very good point. Obviously, uh, he has the capital. He is going to be one of the first trillionaires net worth individual. And he can afford to actually move away from Earth to another planet itself and change the whole world order to a solar order. 
and there is clearly no question capital moving to Asia Pacific region. Uh, you know, it, uh, London used to be the capital at one side, the British Empire. It shifted to America, where New York became the capital city, primarily hubbing all from. I think it's going to be future more and more Shanghai. Clearly, I think China will be the one who will have all forms of capital in their in that area, and that will be very important to understand about the amount of money. Despite all the hesitation right now, we do believe that capital shift toward Asia more and more after the money. And our gift city government is pushing it right. to create it as a hub as well. Yes, correct. Great, Jagdish. You have been always inspirational with ideas and historical as well as future perspective. I've always enjoyed doing a podcast with you, and I'm afraid we are run out of time. So I would love to thank you once again. And before I go, I would love to wish you, our listeners, a very festive Diwali and New Year as well. And we will come back with our next episode to our wider audience base. And as always, you have been inspiring me to take this whole podcast show global. And it has reached a level where I can just thank you from my heart to be really inspirational to egg me on to start this as well. So thank you so much. God bless, and I would love to see you very soon in India receiving the Padma Bhushan Award as well from the President of India. Thank you, Kapil, so much, and happy Diwali. Bye bye. Bye.